Welcome to Call and Shots, a earlier in the day edition than usual, uh, basically trying to catch uh, my co-author on the piece we're talking about, Mike Vorkanov of The Athletic, before he heads on a uh, little late summer vacation. Uh, Mike, how's it going? Uh, thanks for joining. Yeah, I take all the blame for uh, changing your regular schedule up, but I'm, I need to go down the shore. The, the, well, you know, you got to beat the beat up or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a, that's that is a very that's part now at this point. Classic and unexpected Jersey Shore watcher. I love it. Uh, that was one of the great shows and perhaps harbingers of the collapse of Western civilization uh, ever. <laughs> um, so you came, you came to me with an interesting question. I don't know. Was that about a month ago? It was um, before free agency even, actually. I remember our conversation. So, like... I'm so immersed in kind of this level of this kind of sort of value-based thinking, and it's kind of what gets me accused of ruining sports across multiple sports. But what was the genesis of the idea from your point and kind of what surprised you in, in the process? For those, for those who haven't read it yet, by the way, uh, Mike and I published a, a conversation today on The Athletic kind of about, in theory, how NBA teams should value a, a win in terms of player salary. Yeah, so this all came to me, like I said, I used to cover baseball, and um, baseball, I covered it in 2014, 15, and 16, and at, at that point, it was obviously still heavily analytically oriented, uh, not to the degree as now, but you know, one of the things we used to always talk about was like, what's the value of a win when you're trying to evaluate contracts and how good a player is and how much to pay them and all that, and so once I started covering the NBA, I wondered the same thing about basketball, right? Like... Um, what is the value of a win? How much should someone be paid for that? And so it's always something that I've thought about and not had an answer to. And so I really want to explore that with you and figure out what the answers are, like see how uh, teams and the analytical community, you know, values all those things. And, you know, like I, I went through a conversation and I, I legit learned a lot during the during it. But one of the things that really stuck out to me is, and again, this is all kind of compared to baseball and having uh, seen it through that prism a little bit, but it was like in baseball, it's so rigidly followed, right? Like these front offices are just like, uh, you know, chainsawing through free agency by following their, their wins per dollar models. And in basketball, you know, based on what you told me, like, that's not the case, right? Like we see kind of a much more loose and free flowing, uh, way that teams spend. And, and so that really kind of got me thinking about, you know, the, the models, the values of all these wins altogether and why basketball is just so much different. I think there's a, there's a lot of different things to go with. Uh, I think the first thing is just the structure of the CBA, I think distorts the market in, in ways that make it, you know, almost take us out of the realm of a quote-unquote free market. Now, I don't, I don't understand the 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 the, the contract the, the the contractual whatever of baseball on on the level I do of the NBA. But I and there are some distortions relative to like service time and stuff like that. But it seems like that's it's less so, and especially now that teams have kind of realized that hey, a guy in their early thirties is probably not worth a long-term contract anymore. Um, it seems like that's normalized a little bit. So that I think that's the first big one is just kind of the the salary cap is uh, is kind of a pretty big distortion on 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 sort of that. Yeah, but like you know, the interesting thing is in baseball, you know, they have like a loose salary cap 
um, right? So there's more room for spending. There's more room to overspend and all that. And yet basketball with a salary cap and a luxury tax and in case some cases a hard cap based on your maneuvering, right? It seems like it's actually less aggressively following the model that baseball teams are who are very, uh, very rigorous about not overpaying. And, and that to me is interesting. And part of that, as you said, is just like, it, it seems like the market just shapes itself in a much different way. And maybe just the effect of analytics isn't that strong in basketball front offices. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that last point is probably um, some, something I've, I've noted a, a few times is, uh, is uh, when, when people accuse sort of people in the analytics realm of ruining this or that about the game, it's like, man, I wish I had that kind of power. Um, and so that's, I think that's, a, that's part of it. Also, I think that um, the, an assumption underpinning this is sort of the linear value of a win. You know, like the sort of in baseball, obviously there's there's sort of the, the win that gets you into the playoffs or, or not is is outsized value. But it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of a difference between win 61 versus 81 versus 101 in baseball. Whereas in basketball, win 21 is much kind of cheaper to come by than win 61. Yeah, but I would say in the last few years, the value of that marginal win has gone up, right, because of the play-in tournament. Um, and even just being able to get to that 10th spot as opposed to being that 11th seed. So now everything in between even matters, whether you're a 40-win team or a 43-win team, right, or a 37-win team now has much larger ramifications. So you would think that the there would be like a greater focus on attaining uh, on attaining those numbers. That's a good point. I hadn't really I hadn't really considered that. I think that um, I think if we had, were starting from a clean slate, I think we probably would have seen that effect. If, if there's going to be an effect there, probably work through the system. But since you know there's all these contracts that are that were signed um, either before the 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 the, the play in tournament came to be or you know I think this off season was probably the first off season where teams could possibly have fully internalized the ramifications of the play in tournament. So I'm just I'm thinking out loud here, but I so I think that that's that's part of it. But the other the other part of that is is um sort of not just the, the 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 value of a win in one particular player. Even if they played the same minutes, a player who generates eight wins somehow, however you want to calculate it, in the same number of minutes uh, for the same salary as two players who each generate four, uh, the player who does eight, who put who who gives you that eight wins in one spot is substantially more valuable, I think, if we're talking about you know playoff. Uh, if, if we're talking about playoff progression and and um, you know deep run into the playoffs and, and championship equity and stuff like that. I think that stands out, right? Like, and it, and it makes you understand why teams are so willing to go all in on these types of guys, um, and maybe why a team like the Nets, uh, you know, are so unwilling to trade a KD, right? Um, and I thought one of the interesting things that you said was like you can't just plug and play. You know, the guy, whatever the number comes to, is like a three and a half win guy. It's not just necessarily worth fifteen million dollars in salary, right? 
And it's also about how those wins are then allotted on the team that uh, his next team. And so like that kind of calculus is something I, I hadn't thought about much and just how to, uh, you know, how that all impacts the team building when you assign those types of guys. Um, and that to me is interesting. And I was wondering if you could point to like any kind of real world examples, uh, whether your own experience or just other teams that you've signed to just maybe broaden that out a little more. Um, well, I think I, I mean I think there there's one concept related to this is kind of it's it's what uh, what our colleague John Hollinger has, has sort of dubbed the bird rights trap is mm-hmm. is you know okay you, you if you have you know you you have bird rights so you have the, the ability to go way over the cap to re-sign your own player um, and but because of that mechanism you're already over the cap you'd have no real mechanism to replace them okay maybe you're paying you know more than you know the three and a half million or whatever a win is worth this year to to resign the guy, but it's like the choice is between overpaying that guy or not getting those wins, and so that's that like you know that that changes the calculus from a pure value proposition to also kind of the opportunity cost of not doing something. And that's why the Clippers resign Luke Kennard, right? I mean, well. I mean, there's. The, 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 uh, the, I mean, there's the, the additional like, hey, maybe maybe having matching salary in a trade is, is 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 useful. I mean, if it's you know, for a team like the Clippers, um, like the value proposition almost doesn't matter. So they're not even they're they're almost the, the Clippers, and to some extent, the Warriors, I think, are are not even playing with the same deck of cards as everybody else. Yeah, I, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about is like the Warriors and the Clippers and maybe the Nets, depending how things go there, um, do, do seem to be playing by like a different, basically economy, living in a different economy than the rest of the NBA team. Um, and, and so like that's another reason to kind of throw out the model altogether, right? When you're just willing to spend more money, uh, then maybe efficiency is just irrelevant to some degree. I don't think it's irrelevant. I think this is the sort of almost the genius of the luxury tax is I was actually arguing with, with someone um, who did, did involved with it, with the, with the team. That's not one of those teams that is a luxury tax paying team. And they were sort of complaining about the luxury tax. And it's like, well, wait, do you want like, do you want the, the warriors dollar for dollar spending to be as powerful as your dollar for dollar spending? I think that's good for you that, you know, they're basically taking a, you know, each extra dollar the Warriors spend now is effectively, you know, if we were not just in terms of salary, but salary plus luxury tax, each actual dollar they spend, they're actually only putting 20 cents of it or so towards the team. I think that's a pretty useful break on, you know, on on teams just spending their way to dynasties. Yeah, and I've I've had this disagreement with other people too, to some, to some degree. It's like to what degree they're spending their way to dynasty, right? Like they are, you know, a bunch of those guys, the highest wage earners are guys that they, you know, drafted, right, and developed. And we're just able to keep in-house and they're not being punished for it by the NBA's, uh, you know, punitive model for teams that are good at their jobs, basically. Are are you are you taking that side? Or are you you ironically talking about them being punished for? Well, I mean, <laughs> not punished. Like you, know, I. It's not punished because I don't think like a team governor having to spend money to keep good teams is a punishment. Like that's what you should be doing. Um, but you know, it, it does seem like that there is a cost to drafting and developing 
well in the sense that now you're going to have to pay extra to maintain all those guys if they all turn out to be good, right? Like, do you disagree with that? I mean, I... Yes and no. I think the Warriors are such a particular case in that they're almost, they're almost, you know, paying the the interest on not having to deal with this problem, you know, in 2016 because of the cap spike. Like they they sort of got away with 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 keeping all their guys with no ramifications and being able to add Kevin Durant because you know they signed. You know, Kate, they signed Steph to a, an extension at a fortuitous time with his injury history, and then Clay Thompson and Draymond Green got, you know, max or maxish extensions. Uh, when all of a sudden, like the cap went up forty percent quickly, so even their max extension was, you know, a mid-level contract. Yeah, I mean, I see like I see a better argument for what you're saying for like the Clippers, right, or the Nets, um, yeah. because their best players were acquired from external teams, right? From other teams. And they just keep adding on top of it. You know, they trade for a Norm Powell when they're already like way over the cap, right? Um, that to me is a more sympathetic case for that argument than the, the Warriors who, uh, you know, nailed the Steph Curry pick in development, nailed Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, um, and you then know. got and then got really lucky to have the ability to sign Kevin Durant and yeah and that yeah. that was but that was all the you know the the pretext for that Kevin Durant signing was those three first guys right yeah and Iguodala and you know and all that like whereas the Clippers and Steve Ballmer and like props to them because I think actually teams should be commended for spending a lot instead of like trying to uh, make sure they go under the luxury tab. Uh, luxury tax is like they just said screw it we're just going to keep spending and you know pay Marcus Morris and pay Luke Kennard and you know pay uh, Norm Powell and you know screw the luxury tax like good for them and apparently there's a real cost to that uh, which is reputational which is what uh, Joe Wakeup pointed out is they get some heat from the NBA and other teams like that's the real cost to them is that they get shunned by their peers I, I think that's also I think you're like the, the Clippers had to do some stuff well to put themselves in a position to like, it's not just, they just didn't just add payroll. They added good players. Like they mm-hmm. don't get to they don't get to trade for, they don't get to sign Kawhi and trade for Paul George. If they haven't built up a bunch of, you know, this is, this is, you know, true for the, the nets as well. I think is they sort of by good roster management and franchise building and like paying attention to value on the front end. I think they put themselves in the position to kind of, splurge and sort of maximize towards maybe not dollar efficiency, but other, you know, just having the best players, having the guys who will, who provide the best per minute and per roster slot value, which I think gets into, um, this is, this is the part that I've always had the hardest time explaining to people, um, of kind of the, the balancing is, is people get so focused on kind of dollar efficiency that they forget about kind of the other, the other things that a team has to really, you know, maximize toward. And I think that, that, you know, MLB teams kind of do this intrinsically in that they know that they have, you know, all right, we're only getting like 700 plate appearances from our center fielder. So if we're getting 650 from Mookie Betts or 600 from Mookie Betts, like we're only, we're only getting a hundred, you know, hundred, um, hundred plate appearances from our, from the backup. So, pay him commensurate with a guy who's doing whatever he does in a hundred plate appearances, not what he would do in 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, I think that is that trade off is so much more straightforward in baseball 
which I think is is where another of kind of the market distortions kicks in. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's something you laid out really well. And I think you know that brings into this like how much evaluation and projection really matters, right? Um, is understanding if a player is able to get a larger role um, if he's super efficient, you know, uh, in a small role, and then also. You know, how if you said, you know, like a player goes out, how those those shots and those minutes um, and that role is then dispersed amongst the replacements. And I think that's what really makes it so much harder to do it in basketball and then it is um, in baseball, right? Like baseball is just so easy for analysis because it's just a bunch of uh, individual events over and over again where basketball is just this web of a series of actions all kind of uh, tied in at all times. I, th- I think that sort of get back gets back to your original question is like, do teams like look to analytics as much in basketball? Well, no, because analytics are easier in baseball. Like a guy is going to do, you know, okay, fine. You figure out park effects and, you know, maybe some matchup stuff and, and what have you. But it's like, you know, we, we have a, a guy's going to do what he's going to do. Um, whereas, that's a lot harder in basketball. And I don't want to say we're nowhere, but we're pretty far away from having kind of the way I've always envisioned it is sort of, if you uh, like, how does a player's production change? If you like change the dials and the sliders on sliders on how they're, you know, the opportunities they're given in terms of minutes, in terms of touches, in terms of, you know, where they're getting their shots, where they're getting their touches on the floor, who they're playing with and against. Um, I don't think we have we have great tools to really approach that rigorously from a statistical standpoint yet, and so that's what that's what makes that hard. Like you, you can you can observe some things. Like um, one of my favorite recent examples is like I think I think it's like unless you're like a pure fantasy, you know, counting stat, purely focused on that, Dennis Schroeder's best year in the NBA uh, was in OKC, I, and I don't think it's very controversial. Now, mm-hmm. if you if you look at his his playing time at OKC, where he spent a lot of the time on the floor with Chris Paul, with Shea Gilders Alexander, he was getting the third best wing defender, like or perimeter defender, a, a huge amount of the time. Like the best defenders, I did. The, I I remember looking at this after this, and the better defenders, the guys who tended to guard better players, were almost wholly on uh, Chris Paul and Shea Gilders Alexander, and so he was getting that third defender all the time, which, yeah, he looked better. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's um, so how useful is that to projecting him back? Okay, well, he's going to go to the Lakers, and now he's going to get the best, the best, you know, guard defender again. Yeah. And it didn't go, like, you, you might have the sense that he'd move closer to career norms. Now, whether or not you could have predicted it would have gone as mediocrely mediocre, that's not a word. Um, <laughs> as it did, I don't know, but it's you could have directionally thought, and I did think that it wasn't going to go as well for those reasons, but if we're talking about dollar amounts, like that doesn't get you specificity, does it? No, and I was even thinking, thinking of someone like Anthony Simons, right, um, who just got this huge deal uh, from Portland, right, and he was he had one year where he had a really good year, but even then that was split up into different portions, you know, with and without Dame Leonard, uh, with and without CJ McCollum. I think he had like 11 or 12 games where he was the guy probably drawing the best defender on every night. 
Um, and so the number, the shooting numbers, you know, were really good. There was efficiency there, but also how much are you drawing from that small sample size and from the many factors that put, you know, went into his performance. And then like, how do you decide like what he's worth and, and like, what would, you know, what would, uh, you know, a strong analysis of like of his contract, the one that he just attained, like, what would that say? Like about the value of the deal that Portland just gave him? I'm, you know, I'm probably, I, I'm probably more bullish on, on him than, than, than most. So I was kind of fine with that deal. I mean, that's part of that is also you're projecting ahead a little bit. Okay. We expect the cap to jump. So in, you know, by this, the back half of that deal is the league going to be paying 4 million, 4.2 million per win. And all of a sudden, Oh, he's a, is he a, is he a, can you, can you foresee him being a six win player? I don't think that's terribly difficult. Um, now, obviously, um, you know you'd much rather have a you know having a guy making tw- making fifteen million producing at twenty five million than you would a guy making twenty five million producing at twenty five million. So there's you know it, it, it's like it's one of those things. Maybe it's fine, but it maybe is going to be hard for it to be a a big win. And you know, for a team to reach championship level, you need some big wins. Right. Otherwise, you're stuck in that that mediocrity yeah. right that we talked about um yeah. and even just pure like purely efficient and a purely efficiently built roster gets you like what basically right it gets you squat i mean i think this is this is you know to go to a different player this is this is why i kind of hated the Knicks signing jalen brunson it's like it's fine he might he probably will play about to contract but what's that get you if that's like if that's your move and now you're you're you sort of locked in to a team that was you know not awesome before him. It's fine, right? But it, it, and it's, it's sort it's, of especially when you could have uh, maybe even replaced some of that by just giving Emmanuel Quickly more minutes. Well, yeah, that's a that, that's a whole other question. <laughs> um, take a question. Uh, Abdul Rahman is uh, as frequently uh, joins us and has uh, has some thoughts. How's it going today? Great. So. About building a team, is covering a weakness it's better or improving a strength? Oh man, I mean that, that. I think that gets back to sort of what are you trying to do? I think there's a, um, you know, in the life cycle of a team, I think I think there are, there are different things that are important at different times. Are are you a team that is rebuilding, trying to get to the playoffs, or are you a good team that's trying to win a championship? I think you answer that. Uh, differently in in either scenario for winning the the championship only um i mean i think to mm, i guess that depends a little on the team too but i think you you like you can't win the championship without high highs um maybe you can get away with covering some weaknesses but i think we like there's sort of a limit on the team on, on what a team can be if their biggest strength is not having any weaknesses, if that makes sense. Like that's sort of the the like the, the early Brad Stevens Celtics, right? Pretty good players and no bad players on the floor, but then you get into the playoffs and it's like, oh, they got the best guy every time, and you sort of just come up a little short. So now. You're you're a Lakers fan, right? Oh, I think Abdul. I think if I remember correctly, Abdul Rahman's a Lakers fan, and that's a 
that's maybe a different <laughs> question because their strengths are so obvious, but they have such huge weaknesses that they might be an exception to that. But I don't know. It's it's questions like that are hard because it's so situational, as with everything. So here's one for you, like. Yeah. Where, is it more important to be something closer to ruthlessly efficient if you're a really good team or if you're a really bad team trying to build up? Um, in what dimension are we talking about efficiency? I think if we're talking well, about... Well, the, the wins per dollar, going back to that a little okay. bit. Okay, yeah, no, wins per dollar, I think that matters more for a bad team than a good team. Um, because I think you're maximizing, like, I'm sort of assuming that once you're really good, like, there's, there's sort of not really a lot of precedent to being a championship team and not paying the luxury tax. So, like, I th- I'm, I'm kind of assuming that you're spending money and, you know, those last dollars might not be the most efficient dollar-wise, but, you know, to get your seventh man from, you know, pretty good to really good... You're, maybe you're paying extra for that, but that's the kind of thing that might make a difference between you know winning, winning a game seven or not, and you know those that talk about marginal wins having value. I guess it's almost right. those are almost wins on a on a different scale than regular season wins. Yeah, how many owners do you think in this league are uh, willing to pay the luxury tax in that situation? I think that I think the majority of owners, it, given, I, I think sort of the level of the team needs to be before they are willing to go into luxury tax is probably different for every owner. But I think the majority of owners in the league are okay. We're winning fifty-five games. We we already we already know we're a fifty-five win team. Um, to get to sixty, we have to go. We have to dip into luxury tax. I think the the majority of 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 uh, owners in the league are probably signing up for that. I think mm. the I think the where it's a bigger is like we're not sure we're that good, or are we going to be that good for the entire length that I'm that I'm you know that I'm committing to be into the luxury tax. I think the repeater tax, frankly, scares a lot of owners, um, and so that's like some of the are we really that good, and do I do I want to be on the hook in four years to be paying like seven dollars per dollar uh i'm over Mm, that seems that's that seems rough um yeah so but i i like i don't know is there an example of a team that has been at that level and has just said nah the only one i can think of recently is houston yeah i was thinking of the nuggets this year as well um, you know, depending on, I, I kind of view them as a pseudo title contender if everything breaks right. Um, and you know, they made that trade, the Will Barton, Monte Morris trade that seemed to duck the tax. I'm going to check the cap right now, but I think they're, I think that right trade made at them the better. Tax. You think that trade made them better? Interesting. Yeah. No, I think Contavious Caldwell Pope is better than Will Barton and a better fit with what they do than Will Barton. I thought that I had no problem with that. Like, you know, Again, you think you can get most of what you got from Monte Morris from Bones Highland, and and Caldwell Pope is a better fit alongside, you know, uh, Jokic and, and Murray and and presumably at some point um, Porter Jr. and and uh, you know he's a, he's a I think he's a a much more straightforward like fifth option in terms of being a three and D guy 
than Will Barton was. So I don't okay. like if that like if that ha- if that you know that had the additional benefit of of maybe keeping them under under the tax. Great, but I think that that's a just a move that makes. I think that's a that's a move that's defensively defensible in purely basketball terms without even getting to the the the, the financial implications. Okay, I was gonna, I was going to cite them as a team that I thought kind of made some moves for tax purposes. I mean that that that's certainly possible. Um, they are a team where you you know you the the way that organization has been run has certainly been with an eye towards um, parsimony, I guess. Um, <laughs> and you do wonder though if okay they have a really good year this year and Murray's back all the way healthy and Porter Jr. is is not doesn't look like a, a, a long term you know absence. If what moves they make next season, say they win 58 games this year and come up just short in the conference finals, like you know, I not to defend it, but I could see, I could see why one would be reticent to fully commit to going deep into the tax. If you're Denver right now, I I, I wouldn't support that decision. Certainly, as a competitor, you wouldn't. But I can see why you'd be a little skeptical. Okay, you're. You, two of your 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 second and third or fourth most important players are significant question marks for physical reasons. You know, you could, yeah. you know, the the yeah. appetite to gamble there is is I think where the differentiation is between owners rather than if we know this team is really good. And and they got there eventually. I think uh, they're back over the tax, but a team like that at that point was something that was getting there but no you're right like not not many other teams really uh seem to go out of their way to uh to avoid the tax um if they're in that position where they could be a title contender like i'm looking at it now like the heat maybe are like two million under the tax as of right now or somewhere around there um but they spent enough in the past where i don't know that we really have to doubt them yeah i think the area where teams top teams need to be ruthless is that guy's not good enough. I think that's the, it's not it's, it's it's not the dollar efficiency. It's the minute efficiency. It's the the roster spot efficiency. Mm-hmm. That for that, sure. That's where that kind of flips. Um, yeah. I you know I'm I've I've uh, um, since I since I stopped working in the league and have more time to watch other sports. I've been you know getting much more back into soccer, and I think that the top you know soccer clubs in the world are 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 you know, are pretty good at this. Like, okay, he's a good, good player. He plays for his national team. He's not good enough to start on a Champions League winning team. So we need to upgrade that position. Yeah, I, think, I, I mean, I'm a I'm a Chelsea fan. They just signed Romelu Lukaku for like a record contract and then got rid of him a year later. I mean, we we, we could, but I can't talk about you know the stuff going on there now. Um, uh, <laughs> but I no. Um, no, I think that's right. I think that that and I, I um, now obviously the the market is much more market based in, in soccer for because trades aren't really a thing. But I think that that's where kind of some of the best teams or contending level teams maybe fall down a little is is being a little too set with the burden of hand almost of of a guy who is like you know we get into the playoffs and just that guy comes up a little short every year. Yeah, but I would say, like, in soccer, it's easier to replace those guys, right? Like, yes. money 
it just it can solve so many of your problems. Um, whereas in the NBA, it's harder to, you know, replace someone who you think is like your seventh guy or whatever on a really good team with someone who's be, who's going to be better because how do you acquire that person? Um, even if sometimes it is in free agency, right? Like the acquisition path is, is so much narrower. Yeah. Abdul Rahman is, uh, um, has, 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 so, so and Mike, how can you deal with superstars who have unique skills that not always useful for? Like Yanis, when you when you are in the box, how you there is no Yanis is not the typical superstar. So how you come from build around him? Yes, time can can help, but losing those second or first years can go you from historic dominance to only one championship or two. So you, you, your question is, is basically, if I can re- restate it, like we have the, the idea of a superstar or like a, a is sort of a, a ball dominant. This guy can have the ball at the end of the game and make a play and is good enough all around that you're, you're, you know, you, you win a bunch of games with him and also he can sort of close out games because He's the guy who can, you know, create in the mid range or from outside to get the to get the right shot at the end of games, right? And then so there's players like a Jokic or an Embiid or a Giannis who don't totally fit that mold. And is it harder to build around that? Is that is that a sort of an accurate rephrasing of your question? I say that how you nail them correctly after not watching one year's playoffs or tour to East. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't catch that. So, like Steph, yeah, uh, versus Yanis. Steph, Golden State probably nailed the the correct piece around him, like gotcha. Harrison Barnes and defense Draymond Green. But Yanis, on the other hand, don't in their first years don't know how to do how to deal with him. With Jason Kidd not uh, acquiring uh, Brook Lopez very just so how we with your with unique skills? No, I think that's I, I think that's that that's well stated. In that you know there's there isn't really a cookie cutter way. Um, there's I think that the that you know we got you know we got very lucky in terms of of Brook Lopez being as good defensively as he was, but the idea of having a guy who could be enormous in the paint on one end and then shoot threes on the other end, like that was, that was pretty straightforward um, in terms of, of, uh, you know, matching Giannis's skill set. Um, so I, it, it, yeah, finding the right guys around is, is, is tough, but I think that's, those are almost like the, the, that's the garnish almost. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, it does. I, I was wondering. Yeah, so go ahead. No, like the like you know the, the 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 like it seems like that's that's been given out outside of importance. But the the really important thing was Chris Middleton is actually an All Star player too. And then right. and adding a third guy at that level and Drew Holiday, like it's sort of the 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 big picture is you got like the I think it's I think it tends to be overstated um, when you get to when you get to a certain level of player, like a top 25, 30 player, I kind of feel like 
the degree to which they they get in each other's way is overstated. Like maybe there's an extreme example like the Nets of the last couple of years. But um, that, with the Nets, you said. But even then, when those guys were all healthy, right. they looked like a juggernaut. Right. Um, it was just so rare that no one could really say that definitively. Um, but I would, I would, I would think, and maybe this has something to do with it, is maybe the types of players that you need to surround whoever your star and supporting, um, you know, star role, role star players, basically, um, the type of help that you get that you need might be easier to get depending on, on what that help looks like, if that makes sense. Yes. Like what the skills are that you're, uh, trying to acquire. Like it seems like to me, if, you have a guy who is um, maybe a little more limited for a, a star level player as like an on ball creator. It's a lot more difficult to acquire a supplementary player who can have those skills. Whereas like closing holes and rebounding, defending, um, you know, are maybe a little easier to acquire and just not as not as costly. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think that like. In terms of individual effectiveness, for example, I think that that Rudy Gobert has been arguably a top ten player in the league. Doesn't mean he's a top ten player to build around for just the stuff you're you're describing. And he's kind of the most extreme example. But you look at um, you know Bam Adebayo, Joel Embiid, at times Giannis. Um, I think again, like Chris Middleton being that on-ball creator, that the tough bucket getter. Um, as his sort of almost best skill, I think is is a pretty perfect complementary piece that maybe doesn't get appreciated enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way that like those that that Bucks team has been created has really just been gelling so well, right? Because of the complementary pieces that they have in common, and we and, saw that with with the Warriors too, right? Like they had a bunch of great players, but a bunch of great players that fit well together. And you, it, the question there is, all, is like how much of that is by design and how much of it is just like, well, that worked out. I would say probably with the Warriors, uh, maybe by a little bit more like that just worked out, um, right? Like based on where they got those guys in there. Well, but you know what? But with the Bucks too, right? Like it's yeah, not like they worked Chris off. Chris Middleton was the second rounder who was a throw-in to Brandon Knight for Brandon Jennings. Right. It's probably, you know, the guys that you acquire early on is like luck. And then you have to make sure you, you're yeah. targeted with your last guy, like a la the Drew Holiday, right? Where you're like, okay, these, this is the specific type of player we need to get in there. Yeah. Um, we've, we've kind of bounced far afield. Is there anything that, like, anything else that, that we talked about or that we didn't talk about, you know, in the conversation that you were sort of curious about? Um, <sighs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like, you know, the, the team composition is like the most interesting part to me. And it seems like there's still a long ways to go. Um, maybe for the better part of it from basketball being this, uh, just efficient team building model on a, on a per dollar basis. And, um, I was wondering if there's, you know, you know, can you, can you get into it all? How much, uh, how, how, um, like where analytics is in terms of being able to say how good a player is. That's something we, we talked about in our conversation and like how far away we are from that, because that's, that might kind of explain 
um, why analytics is so little used, uh, you know, relative to other sports. I am very skeptical that we are anywhere close to getting a, this player is, is this good in a vacuum and then being able to sort of, okay. And they're in a vacuum. They're this good, but in this context, they're that good because we just have no, it, it like production is inseparable from context and careers just aren't long enough and guys don't perform in enough different contexts and their skill sets aren't constant. So there's always some degree of it's sort of relative. Now the best guys are sort of one of the, one of the, the, the hallmarks I think of, of the best guys is they are context creating. So like a LeBron team is a LeBron team almost. And there's some characteristics those teams have. And, you know, um, that's probably still the case. And it's probably less good as he starts to maybe age out of being one of the, the, the very tippy toppest tier superstars. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it, you know, like for the guys that, yes, if we can acquire him, we will, we'll, we will spend anything to acquire them players, you know, the top five, seven guys in the league you kind of don't care, and everywhere else, but it's everyone else who's kind of, you know, from ten to two hundred and ten. Sort of where guys fit in there is you can maybe get some some pretty good ideas, but where exactly? I don't think that's something we're going to solve anytime soon. Does that make sense? Yeah, I have one last question for you, though. Yeah. Um, why do you hate the name of my fantasy basketball team? I think the invisible handshake is pretty good. <laughs> I don't think I hated that. Did I hate on that? You gave, me, you gave me a sigh. You gave me a sigh. I saw that to be negative. Yeah, it's it's you know, that's a good Adam Smith joke. Um, <laughs> the warp of nations. I had to warp turn of nations after that. The warp of nations. That was that was like that 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 would be the better one if if you were in an econ nerd uh, an econ nerd fantasy league. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually put that as a poll to see what people think is better. We're going to have the, the invisible handshake for the Warp of Nations. Yeah, I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, <laughs> so before I let you get down to the shore, anything else you want to you wanna cover? Uh, I mean, the KD stuff, huh? What do you think of well, that? We should, we should, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's uh, on some level that seemed like the most likely outcome, once, especially once Phoenix was out, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it just seemed like it would be hard to ever find a trade that would work for Brooklyn, right? Especially as the stakes kept gr- getting ratcheted up with the DeJounte Murray and Rudy Gobert trades, and even what's been floated for um, for Donovan Mitchell. I, I just, you know, I thought it was I, I thought it was really interesting just that they call this bluff. You so rarely see that now with stars, right? And I, I thought Sean that Sean Marks is good. I had uh, I had Alex Schiffer on last week. Um, I, I think Sean Marks is very good at his job. Um, yeah. And I think like and I think that you know normally we talked about this last week but it was like okay normally when it's like the it's like star player or coach that only goes one way. Um right. star player in mid 30s versus one of the top very few GMs in the league who's already shown he can rebuild a team from ashes. Um that's a pretty easy call the other way as far as I'm concerned. As great as KD is like I, I was I was surprised that they came out the Nets came out as strongly in support of Sean Marks as they did publicly. 
I'm not at all surprised that they showed that they were like, no, all right, if it's if it's you or him, it's him. <laughs> uh, with, right with, with Katie on that one. Yeah, and I wonder how much. And this is just playing pop psychologist. Obviously, like this is, you know, Sean started kind of hinting that he would take a, a tougher approach back in their post uh, end of season of press conferences, right? So he had to he had to follow through on it, and you know, um, them not giving Kyrie the long term extension seems to be the thing that kind of started this whole uh, episode. I wonder how much of it was KD saying like, okay, let me see if I can make it uncomfortable for you guys. Really, uh, what he was doing, I think. You know, some retribution. So basically, what Aaron Rodgers did to the Packers a few years ago. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's there's some of that now. The question of of whether he was trying to make it like do the thing where it's like I'm going to make everyone so miserable that I have to get traded. Um, that there seems like there's there's fewer levers for that when you're kind of in the off season and no one's around. Like, yeah, you can't like. There's just not there's not the same sort of energy suck in the building as there might be if it's like someone's coming around and you know kicking the ball in practice and whatever yeah. else some of the other things that we've heard about disgruntled players doing over the years. But like nobody nobody really thought that Katie is the type of guy to go full Jimmy Butler, right? Like no one thought that that would have been the outcome. Yeah, but there's there's a you know there's a there's a certain conservatism bias towards you know avoiding uncomfortable situations that I, you could see in a lot of situations that kind of going the other way and there being a little bit of a cave or a lot of a cave on the part of the yeah. Team. It's like, still I feel like it's still going to be awkward when they get to camp in uh, September. Yeah. Oh well, it's going to be awkward. That's what you know. That's that's why uh, Steve Nash gets the big bucks, right? Well, well, apparently he deserves to be fired, according to his best player. No, I mean, that's, you know, that's, but, like, I'm being flippant, but, like, it's, like, the job is hard, and it's always hard for everybody, and and it's just, it's more publicly hard for him than it is for guys in most situations, but that sort of comes with the territory of being a contender, I think. It's like, okay, it's hard, let's, you know, it's, uh. You know, I, I forget what what sports I, I saw. I remember there's some sports documentary I saw where I can't remember what it was, but they like cut to a huddle and like the star player in one team is like, "Hey guys, we knew it was going to be hard, and it is." And that's <laughs> that's sort of that's the situation the Nets sort of find themselves in. It's like, yeah, okay, it's hard. It's always hard to yeah. win a championship. Like, yeah, that's if that's your aspiration, that's what you're signing up for. Unless, uh, you know, what Katie going? To where do you, where do you put the Nets? Where do you put the Nets in the East for next year? I don't know. I think we still got to trade Kyrie. <laughs> um, that's that. I think that I just I I'm there. There are certain players that I'm just kind of done with in terms of yeah. trusting them in a playoff situations, and and he's one of them. Um, in terms of, I think that they're you know probably put the Bucks and the Celtics on line one, and then the Nets you know kind of a half step down. You know, give or take whatever what you what what you might think of Philly. <sighs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'm uh, bearish on James Harden, um, but then again, uh, when you have a team that's relying on Kyrie Irving and Ben Simmons, that's that's uh, ratcheting up the variance factor a lot. Okay. I think that I think that the Nets might miss Bruce Brown a lot. That's. Yeah, I was surprised I think, they didn't try to re-sign him. He didn't get a big deal in Denver. Yeah, 
I think that was a sneaky. Like if if Denver is is if Denver is right, that's gonna look. We're gonna look back and I think see that as a sneaky good move this offseason. Yeah, I love that signing for them. You know, because I I went to a bunch of Nets games and I got to see like Bruce Brown play. So maybe it's my own bias a little bit, but like. Two for 13 with a player option on year two. That seemed like a deal that the Nets should have matched. I think, I mean, you wonder how much the sort of the, the discombobulation of, of everything else, how much that affected their overall offseason. Like, yeah. if, you're, if you're going a different direction, like Bruce, Bruce Brown doesn't do much for a rebuilding team. Um, that's true, but they also made that Royce O'Neal trade, which yeah. uh, they can do much for a rebuilding team. Right. I know. There's a lot of timing weirdness to the, this Nets offseason. Yeah, there's a lot of weirdness period to this Nets <laughs> offseason. Well, thankfully, we can, we can, uh, we can probably, after, after the announcement today that they've patched things up and it's kumbaya all around, we can move on to, uh, to other things like uh, getting you on vacation. Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, I will drive down my three hours down to the Jersey Shore and, and then try to not look at my phone for at least two hours. Well, you should go do that. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, for joining me today. Thanks for the idea of, of writing that. It was fun to kind of kind of uh, walk through this stuff um, with you, and hopefully, folks read the article and uh, you know uh, come out with a better understanding of how this stuff should work, even if it's not always how it actually does. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I'm happy we finally got around to doing it. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. Enjoy your vacation. Uh, folks, I'm back later this week. I think I'm going to try to get some folks on to talk about the one lingering piece of off-season business, which is the possibility of Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks. So uh, watch the space for when that's going to be on. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Talk to you all then.